Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 222, Minis or Meeples, which we prefer, and games with lots of minis. I'm Sean, and here with me, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. We record these shows live Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, and would love it if you joined us. So tonight we've got someone looking for games with lots of minis. And instead of just dropping a game list, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about what we think about miniature heavy games or minis and games in general. After that, we've got three featured reviews this night. Uh, two quick ones, The Turkey Trial, the latest holiday hijinks game, and Orum, a rather unique trick taker. Then we review Reality Shift Deluxe, a racing game that takes things to a new dimension. We wrap up with the Bellhops Tabletop, where I've got a public play gaming event to talk about and more, which includes first thoughts on four new-to-me games. Yep, it's been a good week. We mention a lot of games, publishers, and other things on this show. You can find links to all of it in our show notes at tabletopbellhop.com slash episode 222. That's the numbers 222. Now, those links are likely affiliate links, which cost you nothing at all to use, but help support us. Also, most games discussed tonight will be review copies, which were provided by publishers. All right, let's get going with a quick trip to the suggestion box. Welcome to this week's suggestion box. Here we share some interactions on our content that led to new information, questions everyone should hear, or additional game suggestions. Today, we've got a question everyone should hear from Gordon Ho 3100 who commented on our Quetzal Volume 2 Space Adventure preview to ask, My son really enjoys quests that ask him to look for different characters and objects from a picture. May I ask, which Quetzal Volume has the most quests like this? Well, that's an easy one, Gordon. Uh, the new Space Adventures has way more find-and-seek-style puzzles. Actually, that's really the main game part of the second volume of Quezzle, is finding things and pulling those pieces out of the puzzle to make new puzzles. Now, as an added bonus, Space Adventures also gives you a cheat sheet showing where to find everything. Now, I suggest keeping that away from your son, but if you note he's getting frustrated, take a quick peek and maybe say, hey, maybe you should go look over in the left corner. If you are looking for Where's Waldo style fun, Space Adventures is definitely the way to go. Well, thanks for the question, Gordon. And remember, if you do pick up Quezzle Volume 2 Space Adventures, use our discount code BELLHOP to save 10%. That's it for this week. Thank you to everyone who comments, shares, and interacts with our stuff. We still appreciate all the great reviews or I love that games that we get as well. A quick reminder before we move on. I know we're starting to sound like a broken record, but we just don't want anyone to be surprised when we suddenly go silent for a few weeks in a row. Yeah, right now we've got a bit of a reprieve, but we're in the midst of holiday sale season, as well as flu and cold season, and either of these could lead to a last-minute cancellation. We'll try to get out as much notice as possible, but watch our social media feeds, or better yet, join us at discord.tabletopbellhop.com for any last-minute updates. We're here to answer your gaming game night questions tonight's question comes from tito ba who wrote mo i'm looking for a board game with lots of miniatures preferably fantasy themed i came across quest for the dragon lords but i got mixed reviews about it. do you have any other suggestions oh hey tito thanks for reaching out and for the rather specific question now i had this one in our question list uh flagged or bookmarked to talk about on an ama because I could probably pretty quickly drop five or ten so games with lots of minis and we'll be done with it. There you go. Answer your question, Tito. Have fun. 
But when reading this question the other day, uh, combined with actually something that came up in our, our tabletop bellhop discord, um, when thinking about these, and I, I came up with the idea that, you know what, this would be a cool chance for Sean and I to talk about how we feel about miniatures in board games. Now I'm talking about minis in games. And I thought it'd be interesting. It's not something we really ever discussed before. And to be honest, I have no idea what Sean's opinion is on this. Maybe he prefers cubes. Maybe he prefers fully painted, but pay someone else to paint them. I don't actually know. And we're talking about board games with miniatures and not miniature games, right? Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to do is I, I want to miniature games to me is a totally own thing. Um, unfortunately, my camera is just not quite wide enough to show my shelves of shame um, filled with unpainted miniatures over there. I'm, I'm not talking about the miniature painting hobby. That That is its own thing. It's it's not just games. It's buying armies and collecting armies and modifying miniatures and WYSIWYG and, and basing and all the extra stuff. That is something completely different that actually both of us have taken part in over the years uh, to various extents. Um, I'm the one that keeps diving back in and then backing off. I actually love miniature games and I'm super impressed by the number of impressive looking ones out there. Like if I had the spare time, I'd totally be playing infinity, especially after seeing that scenery that was at origins. Oh my God, that looks so good. And all you got to do is woodcut. You just put it together and war machine always looked pretty cool to me. And, and Gaslands, man, I, Sean and I would both be playing Gaslands. I'm pretty sure every weekend, if we had the time to do it. Um, and well, then there's the space, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. So games that include miniatures, but don't really need to. Instead of minis, right. you could have cubes or meeples or chits, counters, standees, whatever. So while these games have miniatures, the game isn't about the miniatures. They're mm. just playing pieces that could be represented in another way. Yeah, exactly. And then the reason I thought this would be worth talking about is because it seems like it's a pretty divisive topic. Uh, it seems like there are people on both sides of the fence, as well as some people sitting in the middle. And I see a lot of people, especially in the last year or so, bemoaning the rise of the miniature board game crowdfunding project. The 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 huge, the, the main allure of the game is either the number of miniatures you get, how big they are, how scantily clad they are, how creepy they are, and, and very little information about the game. And one company, of course, comes up a lot during those conversations, and that is Simon, um, which was once known as Cool Mini or Not, and actually started as a website to rate miniatures one to ten. Um, they are, are probably known for starting this whole trend of games with over-the-top production values and ridiculous amount of miniatures, where, say, the base game comes with 10, 20, maybe even 30, but then there's all these stretch goals and additional boxes, and by the time you're done, you've got 500 minis coming in a stack that's eight boxes tall when it shows up at your house. And some people feel this flash, the flash of the minis, the draw of the over-the-top production is actually taking away from the game side of things. And honestly, I can see their point in some cases. So I think while it would make for a much more inter interesting discussion, unfortunately, I tend to agree with you here and for various reasons. But for the sake of the show, I'm actually going to try and put myself into the shoes of some of our miniature painting fans out there. A role I discovered early on I was not suited for because, well, I can't pay, paint a mini to save my life. But that right. doesn't mean they don't have a point. Uh, right. You know, there's, there's, there are a lot of artists out there who are gamers uh, and who do love uh, spending time in front of a game or at a you know, workbench with a paintbrush in their hand. Uh, and, and, you know, cool mini or not comes from minis, you know, they, Simon is cool mini or not the play, the number one place to show off your painting skills 
So why wouldn't their games have well, massive quantities of, of great minis to paint? No, I totally agree. Simon making them makes perfect sense, but it's kind of the fact that it seemed like for a while there, and I, I would even say even now, that the only Kickstarters you hear any hype about anymore, at least on the board game side of things, RPGs are doing their own things, are these ones with these over-the-top production value, which tends to be tons and tons of miniatures. Uh, and again, either scale, size, or the look of them, that's the main draw of them. Um, we used to do a show on weekends called the, um, uh, uh, now I already forget, what do we call it, Coffee Break? Uh, the brunch. coffee break we can sun, Sunday brunch. That's it. Sorry. Sunday brunch where we'd look at Kickstarters and like almost every week it was either card games with black text on white background and white background with black text that based on some offensive premise or games with tons of minis. And it's like, man, they are, they're just like everywhere. It seems like the big thing that's out there. Well, and I think though it's, it depends. Cause again, you've got, yes, there are games like, you know, and pretty much anything from Seabon. I think we can agree that that's what they do and that's what they're good for. Uh, there yep. were a couple of big uh, mythological Greek-based games mm -hmm. that I think were really well suited to that sort of things. But then you get other big games like uh, Masters of the Universe, for instance, yep. which, yes, they have minis, but I wouldn't exactly call them a mini game the same way, you know, the Marvel games were, you know, you, you didn't, Marvel you didn't United. get a, a stack of, of six feet high of boxes of minis. Once you went through the Kickstarter, you got some minis, which were cool representations of the characters in the game and, you know, some nice scenery or, or, you know, yeah. uh, castles, which I think are very reasonable, uh, ex you know, accessories to the game. Again, they're, they're ways to highlight the game and don't necessarily take away from it. Uh, and they aren't, you know, from a, a miniature company that is, you know, let's be fair, there to promote miniatures and, and yeah. the painting lifestyle. Now, the interesting one, though, with Master of the Universe, that one doesn't bug me at all, but it's based on action figures. It's based on having those three-dimensional characters in your hands. And I don't think I'd want a Master of the Universe game, especially not with cubes, maybe with meeples or standees, but, like, I want a big, chunky He-Man that I can play with and, you know, fight Skeletor with. Like, so in that case, I think it fits perfectly. But why does Castles of Burgundy need miniature castles and miniature fields with little cows in it? Well, I mean, as as someone who does public plays events, that's why you need those games. Again, table, getting things to the table, yeah. getting people interested in them and drawing eyes to the game, whether, you know, I, again, if you own the game, may, you know, you might not need to draw any eyes to the game. But if you're out there in the world playing games, if you're trying to get attention to the game, the difference, as we saw at Origins, between our version of castle panic and the deluxe version oh, yeah. of castle panic is yep. night and day yeah, i mean that's they're a good just, example they're just fantastic the game just pops you can't not go over and look at castle panic deluxe when you get the exact same game in cardboard for you know 200 dollars less or right. more i think <laughs> Which that actually leads me to a really good point. What Fireside did, though, is they relaunched Castle Panic. They put out a second edition. They fixed up some of the artwork. They added more representation. They um, uh, streamlined some of the rule books. And then they put out this really nice big box. Uh, for our opinion on the big box, check out last episode where we reviewed it. But then after that, they then did a Kickstarter for this deluxe edition. And what they're doing there that I think is fascinating and, and I love is the fact that they're offering both. That if you have the disposable income, you can get the luxury version of the game. You can get the deluxified. You can get the super shiny, oh my gosh, it looks amazing version. 
But then you could still just get basic Castle Panic at Target still. I don't know the retail, but it's fairly cheap. And then for, for that game in particular, there's all in between, right? Then you have the deluxe big box and you can buy the expansion separate. But you can play with just the counters, just the cardboard shits, and it's fine. Or you can get the deluxe miniature version. I think one of the problems you get into with that is the number of SKUs that companies are willing or yeah. able to produce and stock. Uh, Fireside, great for them, has the ability to store three SKUs for the same game, plus all of the different SKUs for the miniature the packs, the expansions, and, and all that other stuff. But, you know, for a lot of companies, that is a lot of resource management yeah. for one game. I mean, it's, yeah. it's all those SKUs for just one game. And really, uh, it's four for the base game because they have the base game, the base game deluxe, the big box, and the big box deluxe. So I was I was forgetting that it was actually, there was a deluxe and a big box deluxe separately. Yes. Than, um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the other things you run into that if, you know, I think Fireside did it right. So Fireside had different, uh, different sort of Kickstarters, but I think there's a lot of companies out there who are doing one Kickstarter. And then after the Kickstarter, they're splitting off and doing a, here's the luxury and here's the, and here's the basic. But mm -hmm. when you're doing that, a lot of times, I think the people who are, are buying the basic are paying a little extra because there is a luxury version out there, right? The costs right. are going to get a little bit spread out. Yeah. You're going to pay more Sometimes for the deluxe a little. one, but not. <laughs> but you're not going to necessarily pay the full price because they were able to, to offload a little bit of that production cost onto the production of the base game as well. So another example of that, that, that I thought was, was great was Dune Imperium. So Dune Imperium put out a version, I technically like three different versions, but it really, it was because of the Kickstarter. So there's the version with cubes and then there was a version with minis, but the retail version was the one with cubes. So if you back the Kickstarter, you had the choice. You could get the deluxe components, which to me is exactly what crowdfunding is for. That's what stretch goals should be. That's what add-on should be. Whereas everyone else in the world, if they chose not to help invest in the game and get it produced, has the version with the cubes or then has to buy it on the secondary market. And to me, that felt like the perfect way to do it. The, the, that way the miniatures are there for the people who want it. And generally the people who want those deluxe components are the people who are the early adopters and who are going to dive in on something like a crowdfunding project, as opposed to going to their local game store, Target, Walmart, or online to just buy the game eventually after hearing a couple reviews on it. And I, I think generally that's fair. Um, there is unfortunately the FOMO, uh, and, and there's also the fact that, you know, some people just don't go on Kickstarter. Uh, they yes. may not understand it. They may not know about it. Uh, you know, you could be the biggest Dune fan in the world, but not know about Kickstarter. And so the right. fact that there was this perfect game for you with the, you know, the iconic version of Baron Harkonnen that just looked perfect mm -hmm. and you would have spent years painting it and you didn't even know it happened and it came and gone. And now you can't buy it unless you pay somebody's, you know, ridiculous uh, eBay, yeah. eBay markup. Um, well, there are companies out there now, like the game steward, like it's a lot easier to get a Kickstarter you missed now than it ever was before. So it's, it's generally you can still get them, but yeah, you're going to pay even more then. Now, another example is the opposite way around. You have a game that came with standees and some people kind of bemoaned it and were like, oh, come on, it would be so much cooler the other way. So then they're like, fine, here's a Kickstarter. If you really want them, we'll do minis for every damn thing in the box. And that is Cephalofair with Gloomhaven. And again, to me, this is the perfect solution. This is the, you get the not so cheap retail version. And then if you really want to go all out, you can do it. And to me, that part of that is actually the um, response to crafters and 3D printing and Etsy stores and people who are making their own 
deluxe versions of the components and the company going, you know, why are we letting Joe print Gloomhaven minis when we can make our own and our fans will buy them? Well, I mean, and I, I suppose at the same point, it's why are they now killing home markets of, you know, people who are doing great work and making minis and deluxified stuff, you know, now slow fair is coming True. out there and stomping on all these people who well, found, as far as a, I know, found a niche in the market and, you know, and, and, and took, took advantage of it uh, or, you know, not even taking advantage, but you know, there was a hole in the market that yep. these people decided to fill. But once Cellafair puts out their version, even if they don't stop the other people from, from taking yeah, I was part. Say, the Cellafair is not stomping. No, on no, they're, not, they're, they're, they're not, they're no games workshop. They're not stopping. They're not physically stopping them, but the fact that Cellafair is putting out a version is going to stop a large majority of yeah. people. Uh, you know, people are going to want the first party version rather than hunting around through Etsy to find the, the perfect third party version, even if there is a better version out there. So they right. are in fact impa impacting the market, even if they're not, you know, sicking lawyers on anyone. Uh, I do, I do think though, that you're, you're right. That going back to Kickstarter for deluxified versions is actually almost right. the better way, you know, sell the basic version, get everyone, but prove that you've got a good game. First yeah. off, prove to me that you've got a great game and then say, all right, mini, mini people or deluxified people, coin collectors, whatever your deluxification is, we're going to Kickstarter. You know, a lot of people, once you have a game, get more of a direct connection to that company. Mm -hmm. So it's, you're yep. more likely to hear about it if you already have the game. And here, look, we're going to offer coins. We're going to offer minis. We're going to offer a, a box insert made specifically for this game whatever you offer that to me sounds awesome um that seems and, uh, like the, the perfect order of doing things prove the game then deluxify yeah which i actually is what fireside did right like yeah. that's they, they 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 improved they had the game people like the game they improved on the game they put a big box of the game and then they offered a deluxe version now i will i, I will want to add one caveat for anyone listening we're saying kickstarter like kleenex here um, crowdfunding, um, the P500 system from GMT, Game any found. type of crowdfunding, um, itch funding. I'd like, like Sean saying, yeah, launch a Kickstarter later. No, it can be whatever. It can be a pre-order system. Fund if you get 500 pre-orders. Yes. <laughs> Heck, if Cellafair wants to open up an Etsy store to do it. Yeah, go for I it. I mean, you know, go for it. However you would like to do it. Actually, to be honest, a game company opening an Etsy store for deluxified versions of their components is actually a pretty smart idea. Um, yeah, though I haven't <laughs> seen any do it yet, but yeah, it makes sense. Well, Etsy takes a percent, right? They're better off selling yeah. it. From what I understand, Etsy takes a pretty significant uh, cut out of what you sell. So if in most companies, you're going to probably just do it on your own website because your own fans know who you are and that's who's shopping from you. Um, we kind of hinted at earlier, but the other thing I want to talk a bit about is the rise of standees. Now there have been standees forever. I, the, our friend G, uh, Jerry, GM Gerrymander has been collecting standees instead of minis for years. Like, like going back to 4E D&D and possibly even 3.5. They just weren't as common. Now we're seeing them a lot. Now there are two types of standees. Of course, there is the cardboard standee which is you get some kind of plastic base and you put a piece of cardboard on it. Um, sometimes that cardboard is just a shape, but usually it has artwork on it. Sometimes the same artwork. Some people do them a little better and it's two-sided. Um, along with that are all the paper minis out there. That's something you can find a ton of on drive-thru. Uh, another friend of ours, David Oakham, makes some of the best paper minis I've ever seen. Um, but now what we're seeing more of, and it's got to be due to some kind of manufacturing process that's been perfected or some drop in price are the acrylic minis, the acrylic standees that are clear plastic where the artwork is actually between two layers. So they don't get scratched up, right? Like you might lose a little shine 
but the artwork can't get damaged or scratched. And of course, the main game we've talked about a lot is Disney Sorcerer's Arena, which of course has the fantastic Disney acrylic standees. But even WizKids, WizKids is like the miniature company. They're they're the people behind Hero Clicks. They did they did um Mage Knight. They're the company that has the license for both Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder. They're doing the new Critical Role minis. They also had the license with Renegade to do Wardlings. Like this is the company that is the Grenadier of 2023, right? Like this is the miniature company. They now do standees for both D&D and Pathfinder. And I think that's fantastic. And I have seen a growing number of Kickstarters that are now including standees in their games or just Kickstarters for standees. Like get our um, non-licensed version of the D&D Monster Manual, one copy of each in standee format. Kind of like we were talking about um, Etsy shops doing pre-painted miniature, or not pre-painted, sorry, um, miniatures. There's a whole ton doing standees now. So there's a few aspects to this. So first off, while they are a great and more cost-effective option, you're still using plastic. Pulling yeah. the protection off them, as you know all too well, is a <laughs> huge pain. And now, if you are the artistic type, you can't paint them even no. if you want to. So I suppose part of the question is, who is it you're appealing to? Um, it, there's there's some questions there. So one other thing that actually just sort of arrived to me, and I didn't make any notes about this, is... So if we look at who's doing it, so right now Disney is doing it. Disney, yep. who is got, you know, fantastic, copyrightable, trademarked, artistic representations uh, already generally in 2D format. Uh, yeah, they I was going to say protect. the big thing with Disney is the fact you're getting a 2D representation of a 2D character, which is part of what I love and why I think it works so particularly well with that game. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to be honest, you were talking about uh uh, Master of the Universe being big chunky yep. figures to me, Master of the Universe was more of a cartoon. You had all the the toys, but for me, yeah. it was more the cartoon. And I think standees would have worked just as well, taking that you know cell animation from the show and and mm. making standees out of that. But what I realized is one of the issues we're running into is 3D printing becoming as popular and promoted as it is. Anyone can 3D print, can scan and reproduce 3D models. Yeah. And it's really hard to pr to police the copyright aspects in sure. the 3D maker world. Whereas it's very clear cut that an image of Scully from a Pixar animation is copyrighted. There's no question about that. And if you are reproducing that, you are infringing Disney's copyright and subject to any legal yeah. whatever they would like to throw at you. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I don't know. You had asked uh, who do standees appeal to? And I've got to say, I think a standee in general looks way cooler than a cube or a meeple, um, especially the ones that are done like the acrylic see through where all you really see is the character and they have some white space around them. I, I don't know exactly why that's always so wide on standees, something to do with the production process or how much gap has to be there or whatever. But I find they look better than, say, a cube or a token. Um, a great example of this is is I'm just going to look at Dungeons and Dragons for a second. So Dungeons and Dragons back when I was running 4E, I was doing um, I, I was doing actual play and they used to send the pre-painted miniatures to us. Well, to save money, they eventually stopped and they switched to cardboard tokens. 
I hated the tokens. I don't know what it was. I wanted that three third dimension of the battlefield. Now that said, I was also someone else who always used 3d scenery with my games. I didn't put walls because walls are bad. They block view, but I always use 3d scenery. I couldn't stand the tokens. Even when they gave me tokens that were pictures of the monsters. Now, once they got to saying monster one, monster two, monster three, and that's what I was supposed to use to promote their game. I thought it was a little ridiculous, but that's a completely different story. <laughs> but to me, the standees that in between it's the, I'm not paying the price the miniatures but more so i'm not a miniature painter anymore and i think a standy full color nice acrylic two-sided standy looks better than an unpainted miniature i get a full color representation of my thing on the board and i think that looks way cooler than a blob of gray or a cube of gray no fair enough uh one thing i think you do have to make a choice on if you are going from cube to standee of any form um once you once you upgrade from cube to standee it doesn't matter if you're using a paper standee a plastic an acrylic standee or a mini you have yep. got already decided to upgrade the size of things so your yes. board size and and your scale for minis for other minis or scenery or whatever so just by making that one step from from cube or or meeple or whatever little wooden component to a standee of any size mm -hmm. you've now upgrade had to you know size up everything relatively yeah in general i've seen some attempts to not do that which i'll call out one in a minute um but first because i just because we're talking about cubes versus minis the other thing you are getting is accessibility a cube versus a standard meeple you're not going to be able to tell apart what's in front of you Whereas once you get into shaped standees or even more so a chunky piece of plastic that looks and feels like an orc, you're definitely improving the accessibility of your game. Um, yes and no, because at a certain point, um, you're almost getting too much detail. You know, like when you get up to a mini, you need too much detail. Whereas if you sized it down to a, a, a meeple of, uh, I want to go back to the, the recent one we just did from, uh, uh Valeria, um, Castlands of Valeria. You look yep. at all the detailed, slightly different uh, shapes on all of the different pieces that made it very mm -hmm. quick and easy to, yes. without your vision, tell what piece was what piece. And I think that is even more accessible than when you move up to, you know, a, a, a miniature, especially. I agree that, you know, shaped standees can certainly offer that same, same yep. uh, noticeability. Yeah, the other one, plus there's the advantage of, of flat things are flat, so you're not knocking anything over with your hands. But again, I, it, it, I would definitely shape shaped meeples, beat out cubes, or the generic Carcassonne, the meeple, right? The the generic shape. Shaped is better in, in all ways for differentiating parts at a glance, for appearance on the table, for accessibility. I think in all cases... Please give me at least that minor step towards, it doesn't have to go to miniatures, but give me that minor step towards, like I said, shaped, individually shaped. Give me resources where the food looks like an apple and the wood looks like a, a stick of wood and the, the stone looks like a cube. Going all the way to my knights are meeples holding swords and my swordsmen are meeple on, or my my cavalry are meeple on horses, right? Uh, Ryan make, brings up a great topic in the chat and one that we haven't really ever discussed. Uh, a flat standee or flat objects allow for... For the placement of an NFC tag, which is something yeah. that a, 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 you know, an impaired meeple of some form uh, can use to, uh, you know, as a way of identifying things. If they've got their phone there, they can tap a, an NFC tagged uh, standee or whatever onto their phone. And it says, you know, the name of whatever it is uh, or, or put, or put Braille on it, uh, flat surfaces, uh, whether it's on the bottom or on this, on one of the sides, 
of the component do make for great accessibility features. Now that one though, I've seen on miniatures. So there are multiple games now, at least three I can think of off the top of my head that did NFCs and their miniature bases. So I don't think that's relegated to flat. Braille probably, but again, you could probably put something on a miniatures base with Braille and it would be just as effective. My concern is if you're fumbling around, right? Like if your vision impaired enough, you have to feel around, miniatures are gonna get knocked over. Very fair. Although, I mean, you know, cubes are going to get skittered around and that could almost be worse well, than it, it's just a knocking a miniature thing is what I'm thinking, right? Like, yeah, I don't know how to describe it without, you know, if you're watching me, you can kind of see me feeling around. I, here's another example of it, though. Like, I, I and and this is the chat's already kind of gotten there ahead of us is me, minis aren't always an improvement. So we've already talked about the accessibility. We, I, I don't even think we need to talk about it, but obviously the cost, right? That That's a pretty straightforward one. Um, then there's a whole amount of plastic we're putting in the world, microplastics. I'm not going to get into that one. Um, but what I want to talk about is just functionality at the table. We mentioned Castellans, Castellans of Valeria, um, maybe if you switch to the like little plastic minis or something might be okay, but like, then you got to make that board bigger to fit everything. Now, another example though, is when you try to make it all cooler, you're now having miniatures need to stand up and that's actually a problem. So the perfect example of this from my personal collection is 878 Vikings. Now, this is a follow-up to the Birth of America series, which were cube pushers. They were cube-pushing war games that used different color cubes that were very clear what they were. A red cube was this player's cube. A blue cube was that player's cube. They all represented the same units. And then you had some special characters that were represented different ways. Well, with Vikings, they did a Kickstarter. And at first, it was cubes, just like every other game they've ever published. And then as a stretch goal, they started offering, like, you can get the miniature version, which I'm sure looks fantastic at cons. Actually, I've seen a game of Vikings set up at a con with full paint and stuff. It looks amazing. But one of the stretch goals changed it so everyone's game, excuse me, everyone's cubes were replaced by little tiny English soldiers and Vikings. And you also get some standees for the, the characters, um, the hero, uh, heroes is the wrong word. Historical figures is a better term, historic game. And these minis are horrible. I hate them because for one, they're, they're tiny and they don't stand up. And you're moving like six from this spot where three go here and three go here. And then you're moving your army of 20 Vikings that just came off the boats down here and leaving one behind everywhere. That is so much easier to physically do with cubes. And then the minis just fall over. And I'm like, if they weren't minis, like if the cubes don't fall over, <laughs> right? Like I would just leave them. It looks fine. But minis laying down just like, I'm not even all that HD, ADHD or anything, but I hate leaving them. I want to stand them all up. And then I, I move my pile of guys and then I had to stand them all up. And I move my next pile of guys and I had to stand them all up. They're tiny. They're weighted poorly. And, and I hate them. Like I, I of all the, the games in that series, that's the one I'll play the least because of that, even though I think it's the one with the best mechanics. So yeah, when it comes to the 878, I really think that when they made the choice to put in a stretch cube to upgrade everybody to minis, uh, they realized that it was ridiculous and unfeasible to upgrade everyone to real minis. And so yeah. they found a well, really cheap and, and, you know, a cheap solution. They saved money. They didn't go with a standard scale or base. And, and instead of getting a, a cool bonus, the, the average user paid the price with poor component quality as a result. Um, hopefully I think most companies won't make a mistake like that and, and, you know, try and push it onto people, or if they are pushing it, they're going to push it with the correct product and not a, you know, super cheap knockoff. Yeah. No, to be fair, like that's one example. I've seen others. 
Um, there was one I shared a deal on and I don't remember the name off the top of my head. And I had someone reach out and was like, what scale are these minis? And I'm like, yeah, they're six millimeters tall. And they're like, oh, heck, I can't use those for D&D. <laughs> and I'm like, here you have your Kickstarter. You're like, includes 1,200 miniatures. And you're expecting like these armies, but like they're super tiny. Like even Games Workshop did it, right? Like remember the epic scale stuff and the Mighty Empire stuff. And Mighty Empires in particular, those like skinny stands that showed like eight knights. I think I would have rather had like a wooden meeple or something. But it's Games Workshop. So, of course, it was a miniature. But but like I think that game would have been more functional with just like colored flags moving on the board instead of these like armies you were supposed to paint that were super tiny. Yeah. And I mean, well, let's look at the uh, you, you've got a set of uh, mechs that you are you, you haven't built yet. Yes. <laughs> Talk about small, uh, you know, ridiculously small scaled stuff that those Robotech minis are. Um, yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> but I, yes. again, that that does seem to be the outlier. I think a, a majority of games, at least games coming from uh, well-respected manufacturers are using a standard scale of some sort. Uh, and not and not cheaping out with little yeah. uh, little Chinese, you know, uh, weebles. <laughs> but to be fair, I don't think that changed my point. My point, though, is in some cases, miniatures aren't better. Like it's just clearer to see, easier to move, especially easier to move. Like if you're playing a skirmish war game and you're moving one unit at a time, yeah, okay, minis are nice. Or if you're representing your hero on a battlefield, but when you're having to move packs of units and and groups of things around or you're trying to figure out area majorities you want it to be as clear as possible um rising sun falls into the problem of once you have painted them when you leave them unpainted they're great because they have nice color-coded bases but like you make everything colored and you're like wait whose troops are those like yes they look distinct but not as distinct as a yellow cube versus a red cube would be that's fair i think for movement again we get into whether they were made right or not like if you've got you know an army of GW minis, you know, the, the bases all fit together. You put a, a little plastic ruler behind them and slide them across the table and, and, you know, you move your unit. That's what they're designed to do. But again, when you've cheaped out and not gotten proper scale and proper, uh, proper bases and balance, and you're trying to move them around on a non, you know, non properly, uh, uh, square or hex battle map, then yes, you're absolutely going to get problems, but I don't, blame that on the minis i blame that on the game manufacturer buying the wrong product for the game um you know again if it, the, the 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 minis were could have been done, made better and made it easier and not have fallen down every time you tried to to move them uh the other thing i do like though are the games that do halfway right um meeples that are uniquely shaped we already kind of talked about that usually still would um less detail less cost than a a um, miniature but a better than a generic chunk of wood even better are the like custom meeples more and more games are coming with very awesome custom meeple um one of the one that stuck out to me recently was um i'm trying to complete blank on the name the book game the library game oh what was it called where you had fantasy creatures in a library this is what happens when we have open discussions and we don't script the whole show so i look up the names of games uh whatever that one was called that was ex libris that's what it's called ex libris had awesome little unique miniatures for each or not miniatures meeple for each each um henchman and your main character and none of that mattered they, they could have been pawns like that but it's thought they were awesome or the other thing or is either silkscreen miniature or meeples skill silkscreen meeples or stickers obviously silkscreen's cooler uh, i get the price difference i definitely prefer that 
Um, I hate stickering things, to be fair. I absolutely hate stickering. Give me silk screened over top. Um, I'll pay the 5 to $10 difference in MSRP because that's about probably all it takes on a production run to go to silk screening. Even here, you get production the, the same sort of production problems you run into with your 878 Vikings where, you know, they don't think it out truly and you get uh single sided so only half the board can see what that mini you know they, they put a silk screen on but they only put it on one side yeah or they have poor color choices cuz how many games have we called out that mm. you know if you if you have color uh problems you can't tell apart this this player piece from this player piece um or lack of enough distinction it's hey you've got these five different cubes that are all exactly the same size and shape they just are different colors. Well, that's going to be a problem for some people, even if the colors are correct, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be problematic for somebody. Yeah, so, but that wouldn't even be, that's not even what I'm talking about here. That's the base level. I'm talking about halfway, right? They're shaped meeples. They're, they they look like knights and whatever. No, but again, they they still do sometimes make, you know, okay, so they, they've upgraded, but they're all the same knight, even though they should be different, right. different colors or things, you know, they, they need to take sometimes take those extra steps. And at that point, is it not, is, is it maybe easier to go up to an acrylic standee or a mini if they're putting all this money and ec an extra effort into customizing the meeples? Now, another thing I want to bring up is texture. I, in general, would rather touch a wooden piece like a meeple when playing a board game. I don't know why. Like if, I, if, if I'm touching miniatures, I want to be playing a miniature game. If I'm playing Warhammer. I want to be moving my units that look like my troops. But if all I'm worried about is who has the most armies in section three, when we get to scoring, I'd rather touch and feel the wooden pieces. That's fair. And no, and I think there's going to be a wide range on this one. This one, I don't think we can really call either way. There were probably yeah. some people out there who would much rather touch and feel a mini. Uh, or other people who just think the nice smooth fact of an acrylic is nice because it, it feels great, but it also stacks nicer than a mini, uh, yep. even though it takes up a little bit more space than a cube. So well, the, the other big thing too, though, is when I touch a mini, I got to worry about breaking it. I'm not going to break a meeple. Very, very true. Well, there are a couple of meeples out there, I think, where... Well, the, okay, <laughs> sure, but, but in general, the most okay, part, even yeah, back, better, go back to cubes. I, I don't have to worry about the cubes, and if I lose one, who cares? Uh, you know, I didn't ruin hours of painting work that I've done or broken off a spear but because I grabbed something the wrong way. And uh, speaking of, of breaking off things on mini, storage and cleanup yep. uh, is, is sort of the next thing. That's I think, the other one. Uh, worth talking about uh we have we have run into games where their own storage system damages the weapons yeah. that the minis are holding yeah and then, then i hate the the you give me the vacuum molded tray where each miniature only fits in a certain way and yeah pro tip take a picture of that and then include that picture in your box then you can always figure it out um but like droopy swords bent spears uh, if you paint anything, you probably don't want to lay it down in a plastic tray and shake it around as you move your board game around. That'd be terrible. At that point, you now have to display your painted miniatures, which you probably want to do, but then you're going out to board game night. Now you're looking at buying Reaper miniature case. Actually, I think we have an entire episode on transporting miniatures. <laughs> I, I, I think we did that once. So maybe check that out. But like there is, a, I think we did storing and I think we did storing and transporting your miniatures was an episode we did if, if my memory serves. So you might want to check that out. But like that. That's a whole nother level you have to worry about. And that is honestly my biggest problem with the big miniature board games from Cool Mini and all that. You get all these boxes. What, are you going to bring them all to play? 
Where are you going to put them on your shelves? Like you want to just take it all out, but then you have all these loose miniatures. Where do you put those? I like it, even Tori and Kat have complained because they went all in on Marvel United. They're like, what do we do with all this stuff? And the miniatures are fragile enough. You don't want to just toss them in a box, right? You're, you're like, you get the right game, like the Funkoverse games. The Funkoverse games come with miniatures. They're pre-painted. You don't have to paint them. I'm calling them miniatures, but they're mini Funkos. Those toss them all in a bin. Who cares? And then put in a Ziploc bag with all the weapons. But your average, like Cool Mini or not, Fantasy Flight, uh, Ninja Division, Steamforge game, miniature game, you don't want to toss those miniatures anywhere. And then there's Cthulhu Death May Die. Good luck tossing tossing that miniature anywhere. (laughs) Well, even that, like it came in its own box. It didn't even come in a game box. It was in a shipping container when you got it. Well, I mean, that's the thing with, you know, a lot of the the Marvel stuff, especially, right? You know, you've seen pictures, you know, of two people with two wheeled carts wheeling around a stack of boxes as tall as they are for all the Marvel product that's come out. Yeah. Uh, it's it's and then you know yeah that's the 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 shipping container and and you can probably size it down some but how much if you get into proper storage and and you know shipping and and you know shit not shipping but just carrying out out to a game store or, or over to someone else's house to play i couldn't um, realize enough people who buy those kind of games probably already have a dedicated playing space because they're the gamers who are buying things like that and probably don't transport them a lot but you still have storage like i literally got rid of rising sun because the amount of room it took up on my shelf i could fit 10 games instead of one it took up more than one shelf in a bookshelf it took two shelves and i have mine set pretty far apart they're not nice narrow you know novel width shelves i can fit a you know a, a standard ticket to ride box either way you know like calyx height and i'm like this is taking up two shelves in my game room that could be better taken up by other games yeah no it's it's definitely it's a choice that you need to make and it's a choice that i think that game companies need to think about allowing people to make you know we you know simon is going to make miniature games but other companies outside of of specifically you know gw simon and miniature creating companies uh, really need to think about whether or not they they need to go that direction or how to best cover the market on both sides of yeah. the debate. And I think for for uh, they're going to keep coming. People are still backing them. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I didn't do the research ahead of time to figure out what the latest one is. But I bet you if we went to Kickstarter right now, probably bring it up live, there is some huge miniature Kickstarter there that's 1,000 past its stretch goal or it's, it's, it's funding goal. They're still coming. They're still making them. So someone out there is buying them, even if it's not necessarily us. And I do wonder if it's the miniature collectors that are buying these. So that is another aspect of this is some people don't even care about the game. We have a friend, Dave Garby, who has backed multiple Kickstarters just to get the miniatures. I picked up a copy of, no, can't remember the name of it. And I can't even go see it on my game shelf because I know it's buried. <laughs> I picked up a sci-fi miniature game that was some kind of version of Aliens to get the bases because it was so cheap. It didn't do very well. I could get the core game for 20 bucks and it came with a hundred sci-fi bases that if I ever got back into Warhammer 40k, I could put all my space Marines on way cheaper than buying bases from Games Workshop and way easier than building my own. I bought that game literally because of the bases in it. That's it. So even I've done it. And I said, my friend Dave does it constantly. And he's, he's always like, Hey, you want some extra game boards? You want stuff? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not. A, if, if I was a developer or designer, I'd probably grab all those extra bits off them and stuff. Or like, technically I could probably get the games off them and then replace all the components with meeples or cubes. Yeah, no, there's definitely an aspect of that. People, you know, the painters 
who are out there and love and who love the painting and love the displaying and love having these miniatures that they've they've worked on or taken part in. Uh, some of them, of course, are obviously doing hack and slash and and you know building building their own minis from uh, yep. cobbling together from others or working with uh, existing minis and three D printing. Uh, although it's interesting, I, I wonder if there really is. I mean, I suppose there must be, but it, it seems like that would be not enough of a market to keep the uh it going quite yeah. as well but at the same time i look at gw i mean you know the, the gw fans yeah. are keeping it going and they're the they're the same sort of people really so i guess yeah it really it's, is. it's really it is the same people it's 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 uh, actually many of the people backing the kickstarters are sick of games workshop and that's why they're backing kickstarters from what i've seen but that is that is not me so do we have any anything else? I think I covered everything I thought we would talk about tonight, but I'm open to talking about something else. If there is any other aspect of miniatures and meeples you want to talk about, but we are going to wrap up with what we prefer. But before that, anything else to discuss? No, I think that's uh, it's pretty solid. I think you know while I argued the other side, realistically, I prefer cubes and meeple on uh, on my games. That's that's what I'm willing to pay for because uh, I'm certainly not going to paint. Uh, <laughs> though for the right game, if you've got the right IP, like if you have cell art, you know, cell cell cartoons, then mm. acrylic standees really are a fantastic solution for games that have that IP already. Whereas me, I think it, I hate to do it, but it's a it depends. Um, if it's a big miniature heavy game, um, I drawing blanks on names unmatched. I don't think unmatched would be the game. It was with a couple meeple. I think that's, you are taking two historic or famous characters and battling them or in, in different terrains. You want the miniature. You want that representation of your character to look as cool as possible. Um, the Eric Lang games I'm on the fence. I don't know. I would like the miniatures in rising sun. I'm never going to paint them. Uh, possibly if maybe an ink wash on to bring out some details, I absolutely adore the little turtle turtle castles, but all of that were to work fine with meeples counters, standees, anything other than miniatures. The cost of that was astronomical. Um, though even now, they're, it's it's not as bad now when you look at some of the more current ones. So I don't know. I'm on the fence for that one. But the whole thing for me is most games, I care way more about the functionality than the aesthetic. And that's someone who does run public play events where sometimes I want that game that catches people's attention. But I don't want the game to catch people's attention for a cool mechanic. I want, I want a cube tower or I want it to be a dexterity game that looks cool and not, oh my God, look how big that Cthulhu miniature is. Um, for a great example of this, I'd no longer own rising sun i did not keep a copy of rising sun i no longer own cthulhu Met death may die like they just weren't my kind of games um another one zombicide i had it i tried it i've gotten rid of it i did play the game those are all huge miniature heavy games yet i've still got copies of el grande and power grid and a whole ton of games with wooden cubes so i think overall to me the gameplay is more important but in the right game, I like having a miniature, like a, a battle game, uh, something like Adrenaline. I want a miniature that represents my character. Um, Kaido Robot Battles had some awesome miniatures for your robot battles. Robo Rally, I don't want a counter. I want a little, whether it be metal or plastic over the years, they've changed. Thing. I, I, if, I think if I'm playing one character, I think maybe that's it. Maybe if each player is playing an individual character, it'd be cooler to me to have that. But if we're going abstract and units and things on a map or resources give me whatever's most functional i guess we don't really have i mean i have a preference i generally prefer yeah. that uh because for honestly for for unmatched i think an acrylic standee could do just fine i i don't think yeah it needs to a be stand, i'd be happy with a standee that'd be fine but i'd want at least that 
for that type, that 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 game. Um, Again, like you Star want, Wars you, Epic if you're playing space. a character, a, a character, having right. it represented has uh has value. Whereas if you're playing a a a, a wash of you know unwashed masses or or my, you know faceless armies cubes do the same thing <laughs> really yeah it's it's really, that you yeah. you want that character represented uh, i think because- that's it yeah i think that's that's what i hadn't gotten to yet it's it's if i'm playing if if there's me if i'm on the board like if you know if i'm on the board some way if if my representation in the game is present i want that to look as cool as possible all right so really um that it, it is what it is uh, some people like them some people don't as for us, I think they have their place. Sean prefers the the simplicity, the the less detail. Um, my biggest complaint about the miniatures, though, is is the the not trying to damage them, store them. That that is the part that I I find the most frustrating, and why I tend to avoid them is the amount of space they take and having to have a spot to have them on display, whatever. Um, that that is my biggest disadvantage. Well, I would love to paint them. That's never going to happen. Um, one thing I will say I do love about miniatures and board games is there is no games workshop telling me i can't use it unless it's painted um i am perfectly fine with my things being represented by a colored base on the bottom or different colored pieces of plastic to tell the sides apart but to me it's all about the functionality i, I want the mo- i want the game to be more important than the minis that, that, that's it i'm a game player i am not a miniature collector i'm not a miniature player i want the game to be as functional as possible but if i'm playing a character make me look cool i i, I think that's probably the end End answer. All right. So that was our discussion on whether meeples or miniatures are the best for gaming. Now we're going to have a list of game suggestions to give you, but for that, you're going to have to tune in next week on episode 223. Thank you. If you want to hear more from the Tabletop Bellhop, always drop by our Discord at discord.tabletopbellhop.com. You can find us all over social media. It's Tabletop Bellhop, one word. And you can always send your questions or suggestions and comments to mo at tabletopbellhop.com. All right. So here we're going to check in with our chat room and see what miniature heavy games they recommend. First off is... Uh, Ryan with, if it's gridded or point to point movement, I prefer minis, but if it's section to section movement or place marking meeples or standees are fine. Yeah. That, that, that's kind of what I was thinking about the, like, I'd rather move a chunk, a handful of cubes to another area. But if I'm doing a dungeon crawl, there's another example we didn't even talk about earlier is dungeon crawls, dungeon crawls. I'd love to see, like, here's my party again. It's I'm playing a character. Uh, here's my group of four adventurers and here's the nasty monsters we're facing. Well, I think we summed, we summed that up pretty well with that kind with that character thing. When we started bringing yeah. up the difference between, between character and, and faceless mobs, uh, Eggman Jr. Zombicide games have a ton of minis. Black Plague and Green Horde are fantasy oriented. I will yeah, correct but, his spelling as I read. <laughs> that's fine. We uh, we that one is 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 on our list. We did cover that one. Zombicide, I think, is a great example. And what they keep doing too is lots of little adva- expansion packs for very interesting things. Like you can now get an Iron Maiden pack for Zombicide, and so you got Green Horde, and you've got um uh, bleh, me and me with game names tonight. Green Horde and the other Black Plague, you've got those two, but then there's also expansions for those, and then there are expansions that work for fantasy pretty well. So I think that's a great one. Uh, Descent 2nd Edition, if you can still find it, from Ryan. Yeah, is there a reason not the newest Descent? I, I have to ask that one, because I only own 2nd, 1st, and 2nd Edition, and to be fair, you get more miniatures in the 1st Edition, but I think the 1st Edition is now collectible. Right. Um, but Descent came with a ton of miniatures that were really 
really nice, but very board game quality. Like the miniature gamers hated it because they just weren't nice enough and they had the bendy sword problem. And they're kind of flimsy, but the board gamers are like, this is so much cooler than a counter. Uh, Eggman Jr. says Alter Quest had a ton, but I doesn't, doesn't know how available it is now. Yeah, so Alter Quest is basically someone trying to re-release Hero Quest before Hero Quest was re-released, and it looks fantastic. So the one thing I'm noticing is what's going to happen is our entire list is going to get mentioned here <laughs> by people. So uh, that, that had, could be interesting, too. Uh, we had Math Guy Dave mention Aberration, which was uh, from Ghostfire Gaming on uh, GameFound. Okay, that one I don't know. That one I don't uh, know. That just came. Cool. That was just a September, possibly still live on GameFound. Hero Quest features a lot of minis. Yeah, uh, Hero Quest is a great one. Any yeah. copy, if you can find the old one, you get a great bunch of um, Games Workshop inspired miniatures. Whereas the new one, what they did due to stretch goals on Hasbro Pulse, is offer you more and more sculpts. So now not every orc looks like every other orc, which is pretty awesome. Uh, Darkling Blade says, moving around a uh, having moving around a map, having a physical mini of your character helps highlight your place and such, but it gets tedious if there's a mini for every enemy, unless combat is very position oriented. Yes, if you're doing line of sight, minis kind of get important at that yeah. point. But again, standees work fine for that. Look at Gloomhaven. Do you need a mini for every slime that's out there? A Massive Darkness 2 is another good one. Massive uh, Darkness look good. Massive Darkness is, is to me, falls in with Zombicide. It's the same company, uses some of the same mechanics. To me, it's like the evolution of Zombicide. But then they made Zombicide 2, so I don't know where it falls. Maybe Massive Darkness 2 is based on Zombicide 2. Eggman mentions Arena of the Contest Tenare's Adventures. That one, I don't know. That I'd have to look up. So that's exactly what I wanted. I want the chat bringing out these ones that, that I've never heard of. Because like I said, I got rid of most of my miniature heavy games. Uh, if you like Cuphead, Town Folk Tussle has some awesome minis in that style. Okay. Uh, I don't know if that fits our style. fantasy uh, expectations, but uh, uh, Ryan's See, if we, saying if we most move of away the games from fantasy, one whatever. of the most impressive out there would be Mechs versus Minions. That game has some of the most amazing miniatures, but again, you're playing a character. Now, what they did is because the characters are so cool, they give you a million mooks that all look the same. Uh, Ryan's saying the most of the games he can think of that were chock full of minis are now out of print. Well, that's the other thing, right? A lot of these are Kickstarter only, or if they went to retail, they didn't stay. They did like one big print run. They, I, I don't want to say cash their check because it ends up cool. Mini really doesn't make a lot of money on these games. Despite them making millions of dollars, those are millions of dollars that go to making games, right? Like a lot of people seem to think that once a Kickstarter makes a million bucks, it's a million bucks in their pocket. And I'm like, no, you still got to deliver and make the game. And that costs a lot of money, especially if you're making miniatures and you got to design the molds and you got to pay the sculptors. And just because a Kickstarter makes $70 million doesn't mean the company made a penny. They might've even lost money. Yeah, Ogres at a certain point, they start losing money again, basically, when it gets up too high and they didn't yeah. allow for the the, the sheer volume of uh, production. Uh, Ryan mentioned IDW was one that, you know, came and went. <laughs> the IDW yeah, they, TMNT. They, they, I own um, the TMNT game from them yeah. and the Ghostbusters game from them, which were solid games. But again, the highlights of those, but that was a nostalgia poll more than anything. It was like, oh, check it out. Miniatures of your favorite characters was really the poll of those games. Though actually the TMNT one, I actually really enjoyed. D was mentioning that there was that one really over the top campaign where you modified the mini as you play. Uh, oh, that, none that's of us can remember coming. the name of it. That's the one from um, the people who did Zaya, isn't it? 
where you have the swappable heads and everything. Oh, is that, was that who it was? Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yes. I remember that now. Yeah. I, I'm drawing a blank on the name off the top of my head, but it was, it was the lady. That one looked fantastic. It's like um, Darkling Blake yeah. recalls rising sun felt like minis didn't seem necessary. Yeah. That's I like, they look awesome, but, and to be fair, you got enough of them in one area. And they didn't fit, which is why they had to put out a bigger board. So it definitely had that problem that Sean called out of once you had minis, you need more room to put them. Uh, Cthulhu Death Might Die, that was terrible in that game. We had, we had miniatures sticking all over the place. <laughs> uh, people were asking, you said you got rid of your Rising Sun, but it's behind you on the shelf. Uh, that'll be in an extra life auction at some point. All that right. is not mine. Aridia, the paths we dare tread is the one with the customizable minis that okay. change. Uh, Eggman Jr. mentions Vagrant Strong has awesome acrylic standees. Not one I know. Again, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So thank you for that one. Ryan was asking if there were Kingdom Heart minis. Uh, the there was talisman? a Kingdom Hearts Talisman. Yeah. I don't know if it came with minis. Here, there's an example of a game. Talisman. When I played it, it was standees, like paper standees, eventually replaced by cardboard, then eventually switched to miniatures. Again, I like the minis, but again, I'm playing a single character, right? It's it's the personification. Uh, Eggman Jr. is responding to, uh, to oh, uh, a vagrant song. Uh, comment I made in passing, uh, weebles would be better because they wobble, but they don't fall down. That's true. Uh, so we, we need a game. We need uh, some manufacturer out there to get a license for meeple, uh, for we, uh, weebles and start uh, putting those we'll out. We'll call them weeples. Weeple, we'll weebles? Weeples. Weebles? Weebles. And yes, Kingdom Hearts Talisman comes with Kingdom Hearts Disney Fantasy Flight, Fantasy Flight, uh, Final Fantasy style characters. Uh, Everdell missed a trick by not doing silkscreened meeples. I mean, they did so many other deluxifications. It's strange. They never did it. Now here's an example of Elf Creek games. They are one of those that are like, they did this uh, kind of what Sean recommended. Like, here's our game, but you know what? The coach things, if you want them silk screen, you can buy that. These tokens, if you want them in metal, you can buy them. These lanterns, if you want them like see-through glow in the dark, you can buy them. And it's all little tiny packs you can buy separately where on the Kickstarter, you could get it all in, but they definitely tried that whole um, you can buy lots of little bits to improve on your game. So it sounds like based on our chat, that may not be working for them. Complete collection has too many stickers, says Ryan. I'm not sure which game that was referring to. Yeah, um, I don't know complete collection of what for stickers. Uh, but uh, ramp up quickly to being a hobby lifestyle. Very true. Yes. Very true. But that's why I wanted to stay away from energy. Most of the ones that, that, that we call out are, are games where painting to me is totally optional. I don't see a lot of board gamers painting their miniatures. Like there are some. But in general, uh, most people like sharing pictures on Instagram, even they're unpainted. Uh, Ryan's point out game found does in fact seem to have, uh, the IP based mini heavy games these days. That is yeah. definitely where, where things have gone for whatever reasons. Dave clicked on Kickstarter and looked at the top games. Didn't see a big mini game, but there was one with the cutest meeples, wondrous <laughs> creatures, uh, sword and sorcery also for mini miniatures from Eggman Jr. Yeah. That one's supposed to be good. Very much any of the dungeon crawling games, right. will come with some type of awesome minis to, to, to make them stick out. Uh, Steve's pointing out that my little scythe has an okay amount of great minis. Really? Okay. Uh, See, scythe got called he out. painted the full set of it. So, <laughs> uh, blood rage is also great with minis. Yeah. All the Eric Lang games, the, the Eric Lang trilogy of area control board games, I think are a great example. Uh, so that aberration game, uh, from Dave was because, uh, it was from Ghostfire games who makes a lot of D and D stuff. Ah, okay. So D and D mini heavy. I, I didn't even call them out, but the D and D. 
miniature games used to be fantastic for paint for for miniatures i used to be able to get pre-painted ones and then they switched to unpainted ones now they're down to tokens so there's an example of a company moving away from it and a company that's like almost miniature based right yeah. so like the D adventure games went from pre-paints to unpainted to tokens uh massive darkness is more of a dungeon crawler while zombie side is more skirmish but it's uh, to me, they're still very similar games. Uh, the Teneris game we mentioned earlier has a ton of minis, apparently. Yeah, I'm looking at Teneris, and it does that's a lot of minis. It's time for a look at another holiday hijinks game from Grand Gamers Guild, who we have to thank for dropping off a stack of these escape room in a box games for us to review. So today we're looking at the newest holiday hijinks game. It's the seventh in the series. This is The Turkey Trial, which was just released this year. Each of these small box, 18 card puzzle games comes from the mind of Jonathan Schaefer with additional artwork by Carl Julke. Turkey Trial is designed for one or more players and is totally family friendly. While the puzzles may be too much for young kids, the story is going to appeal to a younger audience. Most players or groups should be able to finish this one in under an hour as it has a difficulty rating of only one. In the Turkey Trial, you are playing a turkey one that's certain they're going to be served up for dinner. It's up to you to figure out a way to escape from the farm while also helping out some of your farmyard fr farmyard friends. Now, the goal here is to get out and then reach the governor, who you hear pardons one turkey a year, and you know it should be you. Now, we don't have an unboxing to share for you as this is a puzzle game and we didn't want to spoil anything, but know that the contents here match the other holiday hijinks games, a small pack of 18 cards and instructions inside the pack, which will have you scan a QR code to get to a web app. Now, this app's where you get the story of the game as well as where you can look up hints and the standard puzzle-based information like various codes and ciphers. For example, in this particular escape room game, it gives you the moon code, which you can find in the app. Now, playing the turkey trial couldn't be simpler. Open up the pack, set the cards aside, scan the QR code, read the intro, grab the first card, flip it over, and start solving. Now, as you enter your answers into the web app, it'll lead you to the next card or sets of cards. Now, the puzzles in the turkey trial are split among two branching paths, which is great for two players or two groups of people to work on concurrently. In the end, though, you will all have to work together to get the final answer and make your escape. When you do this, you'll get a score and have the opportunity to submit that score to Grand Gamers Guild so they can use the information like how long you took, how many clues you used, which clues you used, and so on to improve future games. Now, this time we got our first ever five score, five out of five, finishing the turkey trial under an hour and using no hints at all. Now, the difficulty here seems pretty accurate, though there was one puzzle that took us quite some time to figure out. Well, good to know that the difficulty scale is reliable. It's one thing that I think we'd suspected, but had not been sure of until we'd played enough to compare. Now, as usual for these games, there was an interesting mix of puzzle types that tested our logic, deduction, math, and observation skills. There was only one puzzle that made us want to write on the cards, and as I recommended for other games in the series, one of the best things you do is just have some card sleeves on hand with a red erase marker. That way you can write on the cards without actually ruining them. Though I suppose even some plastic wrap would, wrap would work in a pinch, though it might be harder to write on than a sleeve. Now, my kids in particular really like the story of this particular holiday hijinks game, with my youngest being really amused by the fact you are actually playing the turkey in this game. The turkey trial story really does make this one great for playing with younger kids, though I think most of the puzzles are geared more towards adults. 
I did enjoy the twist of the character being played in this one. It's a fun one and certainly thematic enough. Now, what I liked the most is the way the story branched. At one point, you're presented with two puzzles at once and two an answers to enter in. Well, after you complete either one of those, that tells you to grab more cards with more puzzles, which in turn leads to more puzzles and more cards. Eventually, you get to this point where you're at the end and it says you're only halfway there and you basically have to go back to that first puzzle. Or you might do what we did and kind of go down both paths until we get stuck and then go back to try on the other side to see if anything from that puzzle helps the other puzzles out. This makes this particular escape room game great for a couple or again, a larger group split into two teams. It's interesting that the best player count on these has varied in your experiences, mm. but the player count isn't something they feature on these games. Yeah, all the games just list them as a game for one or more players, which uh, you can check Board Game Geek is what I recommend to see what most average people recommend them at. This one, I think you want two or four, like you want to split into two teams. I think you need at least two people to really get the most out of this one. Now, the only thing I really have here that I would complain a bit about is they don't really explain pardoning the turkey or why the game is even called the turkey trial. This is a United States only thing and not part of Thanksgiving in Canada or anywhere else in the world. So completely confused my kids until I was able to explain the whole thing with the governor and pardoning a turkey every year and what that had to do with anything. I almost feel like the game should have just been like the great turkey escape, though I, you lose the alliteration there, but some other alliterative name or something like that. And then just having you escape the farm just to not get cooked at that point, it would make the game more accessible to a wider range of people and cultures. It's true that while a number of countries do indeed celebrate Thanksgiving, I'm not aware of anyone other than the U.S. and Canada that treat turkey as an aspect of that holiday. And as you pointed out, the poultry pardon is a U.S only thing. Uh, I welcome listeners to check out Turkey as Food on Wikipedia for a real rabbit hole of poultry. Now, I continue to really enjoy these small card pack escape room in a box games from Jonathan Schaefer. Uh, they continue to impress me by being unique and each playing slightly different from the last. Now, out of the ones I played, this is by far the easiest and probably the most accessible holiday hijinks game I played, as long as you understand the holiday traditions in the United States around Thanksgiving. This one might almost be as market limited as the independence incident when it comes to specificity in holidays. Now, I think the turkey trial would be a great game to play on Thanksgiving, as long as your gathering doesn't include too many people. Maybe if you do have a lot of people, this is something an adult can share with the kids table. Another Thanksgiving tradition. Maybe something for the vegans out there sick of the holiday bird cruelty. Fair enough. If you dig escape room style puzzles and want a wide variety of small challenges that can be played through in a short period of time, you'll probably enjoy the turkey trial, whether you play it on the holiday or not. If the entire concept of 18 card quick playing puzzle games great for one or more players interests you, I encourage you to check out our other holiday hijinks reviews. Yeah, we've already looked at the independence incident, the birthday burglary, the pumpkin problem, as well as now the turkey trap. And watch this place for an upcoming review of the Kringle Caper sometime closer to the big day. That's it for our review of The Turkey Trial, the seventh and newest holiday hijinks game from our friends at Grand Gamers Guild. Keep them coming, Mark and Jonathan. We can't wait to see what holiday you're going to do next. Will we be protecting our pot of gold on St. Patrick's? Gathering at mosques for Eid? Maybe hunting down some eggs for Easter or something else? Here's one for our fans. Let us know what holiday you would most like to see in a holiday hijinks game. We'll be sure to pass the info on to Mark. 
just let us know in the comments. Email mo at tabletopbellhop.com or toss a post up at discord.tabletopbellhop.com. Welcome to our look at Orem, a new take on trick-taking from Pandasaurus Games, who we have to thank for sending us a review copy to check out. Orem comes from designer Shreesh Bat and features artwork from Steve O. Torres. It was just released this year by Pandasaurus, who is currently the game's only publisher. Orem is a trick-taking card game that can be played with three or four players, with games taking half an hour to an hour each. The box lists this as a 7-plus game, which seems about right to us. In Orem, the players are alchemists who have finally figured out the secret of converting common metals into gold. Now it's time to perfect the formula on your own or with a partner. This modern trick-taking game diverts from traditional trick-takers in a number of ways. Uh, the biggest one being you can't ever follow suit. Other changes include earning trump cards for load card plays, those trump cards being displayed on the table and not your hand, scoring only mattering one hand at a time. Fans of traditional trick-taking games are going to have to unlearn what they have learned in order to master Orem. For a look at the rather striking cards in this card game, check out our Orem unboxing video on YouTube. There you'll see the game's small box, its single deck of oddly tall cards split over five suits, a number of gold trump cards, three scoring gems, a first player token, the rule book, and some summary cards. All of this is in a very shiny gold cardboard box insert. Now, the one thing that I think is important to note here that's uh, of all of that is the card size. I have never seen games with this size card. I don't know why any publisher would go to like, let's get a die made for a unique size card. They're weird. Like they're not, they're, they're oddly tall. They're not as skinny as say space base and they're not tarot sized. This isn't really a problem unless you like to sleeve your games. I did some research on this one, and as far as I can tell, there is no current sleeve on the market that fits these cards well. Now, I will call out a positive side of this box is the rule book. This did something I adore that you do not see very often, which is present the full rules for playing with four players, and then another set of full complete rules for playing the game with three, instead of just listing the changes when you play with less players. Now, this game does a lot of things that are quite different from the trick-taking games you may be used to. So we're going to do a full overview of play, though unlike the rulebook, we'll just cover the four-player rules and then note the changes when you play with less. Yes, sorry, Mo, I'm going to do the thing you hate. <laughs> so to start a game of Orin, you first need to separate the gold cards. These are displayed on the table in reach of everyone sorted by their value. Each player is then handed a zero gold card, which they put face up in front of them. Uh, technically either side because they're two-sided, but it doesn't matter. You then shuffle the rest of the cards. These are the base metal cards, and you deal out a hand of 12 to each player. The remaining two cards in the deck go face up. Now, there are five suits of these cards, the, the metal cards, that are numbered 1 to 10 in each suit. Players sitting opposite each other are partners, and will be trying to get a higher combined score than their opponents during each hand. The mm. first team to win two hands wins the game. These wins are tracked by the scoring tokens, so no pencil and paper are needed. Now, each round starts with the start player picking one base metal non-gold card from their hand. Again, the, the gold cards aren't in your hand anyway, so pick a card from their hand, place it on the table in front of them as a bid for how many tricks they think their team will take this round. This continues around the table with the final bid for each team being the highest of the two players in that team. Whoever bid the highest of the two of you, that's your team's bid. The start player then leads any base metal card. The next player then must play a card of a different suit, with play continuing with each new card having to come from a different suit than any previously played card. Now the team with the highest plays card takes the trick, but then the player of the lowest card played gets to take a gold card valued at the same value as that low card. 
if one's available. These gold cards are trump. At any time, instead of playing a base metal card, you can play a gold card from your tableau. If two players do this, the highest gold card takes the trick. The thing is, these gold cards are also worth points. Now, a hand ends immediately when any player can't play a base metal card because they only have cards that match the cards already played, and they have no gold cards or they choose not to use a gold card. When the round ends, teams total their points. If they beat their bids, they get points equal to that bid, plus the value of gold cards both players have collected. If they perfectly match their bid, they double their points before adding in the gold card value. If they don't hit their bid, they still get points for any gold cards they have. Now the team with the most points wins the round, and as noted earlier, if this is the second win for the team, they win the entire game. No need for scorekeeping cards. Now, in addition to using gold cards as trump, there is one other thing you do. At any point in the round, before a trick is started, player can discard a gold card, returning it to the supply on the table, and swap out their bid card for another card in their hand. Now, there's a bit more to it with rules for tiebreakers and the various gold card values, but you should be able to get the idea of it from that. Playing three players is simpler, as there are no partners, your bids are all made at the same time, and the win goes to the first player to win two rounds. If there's a tie and everyone wins one round, the tie goes to the player who made the highest bid in the last round, who successfully hit their bid in the highest round, the last round. Note, this is something that's not in the rules, but was clarified by the designer on BoardGameGeek. Finally, there are some optional rules for expert players. The first is to remove the zero gold cards so that no one starts with any cards in the trump suit, and the second is to total your points each round, and the team or player with the most points at the end of three rounds wins. Uh, sorry, the pen and soul and paper are back for scoring if you do use that version. So as you can see, Orem really kind of messes with traditional trick-taking. It, it's definitely different from what most of us expect. Trump cards that are on your table, they're not in your hand. Worrying about what the lowest card you or your partner play if you can't win a trick, or possibly losing a trick on purpose just to get a high card out there to be able to take the gold. Bidding for tricks, but then being able to change your bid mid-game. And then, well, of course, the whole you-can't-follow-suit thing, which has pretty much messed up every single person I've taught this game to. Even when preparing this review, as we have recently played so many trick-taking games, I was getting confused and needed to be corrected and check the rules. <laughs> it's really that different than what you're used to in trick-taking. So we first tried Orem 3-player, and it took us quite some time to break the old habits. Uh, Deanna and I in particular were continually playing cards of suits already played, and we often, all of us, all three, forgot we had trump cards because they're not in your hand, they're on the table. And then our first ever play, first time we play the game, our first experience with it gets that three-way tie, and the tiebreaker that's in the rulebook doesn't make sense. The tiebreaker in the rulebook just says whoever bid the most. You don't have to make your bid. So like the last round, you're just going to play down the highest card in your hand just in case you end up tying and it makes no sense it just then it's random who wins because you had a better card in your hand so i'm sorry to say our first impression of this game was not great now while i managed to get the not following suit part right bidding tiebreakers and trump continued to foil me now the second time we had the game out after learning about the rule changes from the designer because i went and contacted them like what's going on with this tiebreaker rule it makes no sense and it was better um i don't know if we were in a better headspace whatever but it did play a lot better um we played a couple different rounds of the game at three player and in the end it's it's a solid three player game it, it, it's it's not bad. I, I think both of us, um, Deanna included, would probably rather grab something else if we were expecting like, hey, it's the three of us. What are we doing tonight? But it was okay. 
it was mm, fine. The problem is it's hard to justify playing a game that's just fine when there are so many great games out there. So while I think we'd move past a negative review of the game, it was still going to be a stretch to say a lot of nice things about it. But then we tried Orem with four and wow, what a difference playing with a partner makes in this game. This game was clearly designed for four players in two teams and it shines when played that way. Now, yes, you're still going to have to unlearn some trick-taking traditions, but it is so worth it. It was almost like a different game entirely. All the complaints we had at three players essentially vanished, and it went from meh to marvelous. It's honestly kind of a shame they included the three-player rules, as it hurts the game more than it helps it. Yeah, with four players, this is a very thinky trick-taker with a lot going on. It features almost perfect information when compared to other trick-taking games, because every card is dealt out every round except for two, and those two are face-up. And that, it, it's there for the game. The last hand of the game, if you're a card counter, you know exactly what every, well, at least what the other team has and what your partner has. This means this game is really going to appeal to the card counters out here. Like, honestly, this would have been my dad's kind of trick-taking. He would adore this game and kick our butts. Now, if you're not a card counter, it still can be fun, but you might want to make sure none of you are card counters. <laughs> While not as relaxed and social as some, due to the need to correct some of your instincts, it can still be a fun, easygoing game. Now, while the new mechanics will throw you off at first, I think it's totally worth getting past that, as this is one of the most unique and enjoyable modern trick takers I've played at four players. If you dig team-based trick takers like Euchre and bidding card games like Spades, I think you're going to find a lot to like in Orem. And if you're a card counter, you're going to love it even more. If your usual game group is only three people, can't recommend you just go pick this card game up. Though there aren't a lot of three-player trick takers out there, so you may want to try to find a way to give it a shot. There are actually two different versions available on Tabletop Simulator, a plain version and a lightly scripted version. So give it a go there before you spend any money at three. Now we get to the final group, the players who don't like trick takers. Well, this game takes trick taking and makes it more complicated. So I think in general, it's not going to win anyone over who's new to trick taking. And I wouldn't think it's a great game to introduce someone who's never played a trick taking game before. Though I'm not sure because I played plenty. Maybe this is actually a great place for someone new to it because you won't have those preconceived trick-taking traditions in your head that are so wrapped around this game. So that's it for our look at Orem, a trick-taking game where previous knowledge of trick-taking tropes actually gets in the way yeah. of learning how to play this game. Now, what's a game you played that took something you have internalized over the years and turned it on its head? Tell us about it in the comments below. Now, one final thing before we wrap up that this review, and that is to remind you that if you found this review helpful, and if you enjoy the content we put out, it would be awesome if you tipped your bellhop over at patreon.com slash tabletop bellhop. Welcome to our review of Reality Shift Deluxe, a magnetic racing game from Academy Games, who we have to thank for letting us take a review copy home from Origins 2023. Now, Reality Shift on its own is a two to four player, three dimensional racing game from Matt Hansen. Now, the Deluxe Edition, which is what we're reviewing here, includes additional rules for having a fifth player and some additional modules. Both versions of the game, though, do feature artwork from Aldo Dominguez. Reality Shift comes from Apollo Games and is being distributed and sold here in North America by Academy Games. The playtime is listed as 15 to 60 minutes, 
but we'll, we'd go just so far as to say 15 minutes to two hours or more, depending on yeah. luck and how silly you get with the board setup. Now, I would also say the age on the box is off as it's listed as 14 plus, and there's no reason younger players shouldn't enjoy this game. Uh, in particular, my 13 year old daughter loves it. It's one of her favorite games. And due to the lack of text on the base game cards, I could see even younger kids enjoying this unique racing game. That said, there are small magnetic pieces in the game, which probably impact the game, the age rating more than anything. Now, Reality Shift takes racing to the third dimension, using magnetic racers who race along tracks on the faces of chunky cubes. It uses a mix of dice and cards in order to figure out how far you can move each turn, but then also uses the same cards to allow players to hack the board by sliding, twisting, and flipping cubes, leading to a constantly changing track. Now, Reality Shift Deluxe contains everything in Reality Shift and more, including all of the stretch goals from Academy's well-funded Kickstarter for this game. Now, these include things like power-ups, a more competitive way to play, additional tracks, a board, and a bunch of other stuff. Now, it is possible to pick up either version of the game, and you can pick up both if you want to make some truly epic tracks. Now, for a look at these racers, the cards, and the very cool map cubes, check out our Reality Shift unboxing video on YouTube. There you will see just how chunky these cubes are and the brilliant way they fit together. Yeah, the component quality here is great. Uh, the magnetic racers grip the map cubes great. The cubes actually lock into each other, making them easy to stack. Card quality is good. The rule book is fantastic at slowly introducing the game one little bit at a time. The only wonky thing I had is one of my cubes rattles, and I have no clue why. Still works, though, so it's just noisier than the rest. The base rules for Reality Shift are quite simple, and you should be up and playing in minutes. Take the nine base game cubes, mix them up, and make a grid of three by three, so that the start cube is in the opposite corner to the finish. Then rotate the cubes so that the corners and middle are white side up, and the four edge pieces are each a different color side up. Place the checkpoint cards off to the side, then shuffle the action deck and give three cards to each player, who should grab a summary card and a racer in the color of their choice. Select a first player, and you're ready to go. Note with the Deluxe Edition, you will be leaving a bunch of stuff in the box at this point. All the rest of the stuff is optional, and we'll get to it in a bit. A player's turn starts by rolling the die. Then, if their racer isn't on the board, they place them either on a starting space on a visible side of the starting cube, or on a visible checkpoint whose number they collected on an earlier turn. Next, the player takes three actions in any order. One of these is to move their racer forward a number of squares equal to the value on the die. This is mandatory. You have to move the mo number on the die. When moving, you have to maintain your facing and you have to move the full amount rolled. If your racer can't complete this movement, they crash and are removed and will respawn next turn. The next optional action is to move with an action card. For this, you get two choices. One is to flip your racer around 180 degrees. It doesn't matter the value of the card played to do this. The other is to move forward the number on the card. Now, the last option is to shift reality. Pick a cube on the board whose face-up side matches the color of the card you want to play. Whites here are wild cards. Rotate, slide, or flip the cube as shown on the card. These include rotating the cubes 90 or 180 degrees, turning them in place, or flipping them, which can actually include rolling them up onto other cubes or down off them. After doing this movement, if your cube is over air, it falls straight down to rest on the table. Any racers caught between or under cubes during this action are removed from play and will respawn on the player's turn. The active player replaces any played cards with new cards from the deck, and the play moves to the next player. The first player to land on or pass over the finish wins. 
Yeah, the only thing we haven't really mentioned here are checkpoints. There's seven of these on each of the cubes besides the start and finish. There's one on one side. If you pass over a checkpoint, you have a choice to collect the matching card if it isn't already collected. Whenever you're forced to respawn, you can do it from a checkpoint if you own it. Note, you can only hold one checkpoint. You can't collect a bunch of them. Another easy to forget rule is that if a racer is on a piece of track that is the same color as they are, that cube cannot be manipulated in any way. Due to this, you need to avoid using the white racer while just playing the base game, if you have the deluxe version. That's it for the core game of Reality Shift. That, that covers everything you get if you just pick up the standard version of the game. Next, we'll dive into some of the optional rules in the Deluxe Edition. Now, the first is the White Racer we just mentioned. This allows you to play five players, but introduces a special rule. Because most of the cube's sides are white, more than half of them, you have to pick a disadvantage at the start of the game, like not being able to use checkpoints or moving half the number rolled on the die. Next are three Deluxe Track Cubes. These include the White Hole, which can always be manipulated, but doesn't have any tracks on it, the Portal Cube, which has a portal in the center of each face, if you enter the portal, you come out of any other portal on a different side of the cube, and the Vortex Cube, which zips you along right through it in one side and out the other for only one movement. Then we have power-up cards. You claim one of these by passing over a checkpoint. Each player can hold two. These include powerful game-breaking abilities like Disintegrate, which lets you move through an opponent's racer and destroy it. Now, to go with these, there's also a battle mode variant, which turns the game into a PvP battle instead of a race where players are trying to get enough defeats, like enough kills. There's also a capture the flag variant called power mode, where you're trying to collect numbered cubes from checkpoint squares, and they can be stolen by the other team. One of the best new additions, and one we tend to use every game, is the new mounted board. It comes with two sides. The first one just helps you organize your cubes better and keep things square while playing. The other, though, actually features paths on it and allows your racers to go off the cubes and then back on. Finally, you're presented with a number of deluxe path configurations to try with using combined cubes from both sets, uh, as well as if you have a second set of the, the base game, you can combine them in. And what's nice about this is they recommend different rule variants that work best with each. Like you don't want to do a race on the one that's one giant cube tower. That's much better for PvP. So really what you have is a pretty simple race game with a very cool 3D element and the ability to modify the board to your advantage and your opponent's disadvantage during play, along with a bunch of optional ways to modify that basic gameplay. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And I got to say, it's pretty cool. Uh, we first saw this game set up on a demo table at Origins and I was instantly intrigued. Intrigued enough that I was like, Sean, Sean, come over. You got to check this out. The first time you see this game, it just, you know what it is. You look at it, you see these cubes and you see this little racer on the side and you see a die and you see pass. You're like, oh my God, it's a racing game, but it's like a 3D and with cubes. Like I was sold right away. I told myself right after seeing it that I'm like, I am bringing home a copy of this game no matter what. And I got to thank Academy Games for letting that be a review copy. Now it's easy to think that just from seeing the game that it could be pretty gimmicky, but I'm happy yeah. to say there is a real game here, not just a neat looking one. Yeah, once I got home, um, I did learn there's a bit of a weird learning curve here, and that's if you just kind of take it as a beer and pretzel game and kind of goof around and start moving blocks because it's fun. Um, many times you end up with a way shorter game than you'd expect. The, half the time you're going to move a block because it looks like it'd be fun, and it, it ends up it just opens a path for an opponent. Um, this included at least two games we played where like not every player got a turn because someone won on their first turn because of what other players did before them. 
Now, one recommendation for this game is either use a small table you can walk around or a lazy Susan you can mm -hmm. spin because you'll really want to be able to see this game from all angles. Oh, that's a good tip. A lazy Susan definitely does help with this game, um, as does if you can make the game lower because like sometimes you need to look in kind of like in the gap at, the, at like the hole in the donut to see a racer in there. Um, the one thing we learned though after those first couple plays where it just went a little too quick and seemed a little too random was that the actual skill required what you need to do to play reality shift well um that's this is with or without the lux is you have to focus more on making sure you're not setting up your opponents to win that you're not giving them a path and when you just kind of randomly move stuff far too often you're actually helping out the other players once everyone at the table learns this that's when the game starts to become more deep and thinky with more uh, ap and more decisions and more or, oh, I'm almost there, but now I'm not even close. It's at this point with a bunch of people who have played the game a number of times and had figured this out that the game started to stretch way past that one hour mark that was shown on the box. It's interesting that this game sort of ignores this occurrence on the box and suggests a shorter, long playtime on the uh, the box time. Yeah, it has to be who they play tested with. I don't, I don't even know uh, where they came up with the one hour. So like one hour for a race game seems like it could be too long, but then you know what? When you have a group of experienced players, you almost get that chess-like feel. When reality shift, at least the base game, we found that, that it was, you were outthinking your opponents and you were always trying to deny your opponents the win, which just did kind of drag out the game a bit, but in a good way. Like it, it, when you do get that win, it's very rewarding. Now that changed when we started throwing in more stuff from Deluxe. Once you, the more optional stuff you toss in, the more chaotic the game came became and more casual it became. And I don't mean this is a bad thing. This, this could be good or bad, depending on what you're looking for. If you want your racing game to be a nice two hour thinking, I'm going to think my opponents, you're not going to like all this stuff. But if you want to go back to that beer and pretzel, quick rapid fire race, these guys are racing around this 3d board. That's where you're going to want to throw more of these random things in like the power up cards. And what I like about it is that this one box does both, right? Like it has sliders I can manipulate based on who I'm playing with and what I'm looking for. And the ability to adjust that game to a range of players combined with the great table presence is certainly just the sort of game we look for when thinking about public play events. Yeah, this is a great one to uh, catch people's attention at the table, stick to the base rules, don't let people overthink it, do some rapid fire 10, 15, 20 minute games. Now, of all the people I played Reality Shift with, it's my teen daughters that actually enjoy it the most. Uh, this is one of their favorite games in our collection. They played the game on their own, um, and Gwen's even taught it at public play events without me playing. Um, they've got more plays of this game than I do. They particularly love coming up with ridiculous cube stacks and maps and tracks, though. That's the thing they're into. And I got to say, some of them get a little too complicated and take them hours to finish. Um, I personally prefer to stick with the ones in the book because they're play tested and they work well for, like, remember I mentioned they mentioned the different modes that work well with each map? Well, they do. Um, they'll create some kind of crazy thing and be at it for hours. But to each their own. I, I applaud them for making their own fun out of the game. Now, I can very much imagine back in the day as teens, we would have tested the limits of the game with cube designs. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure we would have. So overall, Reality Shift is a very neat racing game, uh, different from every other racing game I played. Well, it can seem a bit chaotic at first, once all the players start paying a little more attention to the game and where things are going and how they're going to change, it gets very tactical and can even be quite strategic. That said, it can be a fun, almost beer and pretzels experience if no one takes the time to overthink it. And then the added rule variants and additional materials in Reality Shift Deluxe let you adjust that slider even more. 
sort of a modern day speed racer where the track itself is a danger to you and other races ever shifting in a doctor's strange like vision until you can find the right moment to race for the finish line and hope it's still there when you arrive. Now, if you grew up playing like traditional roll and move style racing games, I don't necessarily mean games with racing cards. I mean, games where you're just rolling to see who gets to the end first. And you want to see that genre completely reborn into something more modern and tactical. You got to check out reality shit. Now, if you're on the other end and like abstract games all about outmaneuvering and outthinking your opponents, Reality Shift may also be for you. One of the best parts here is the amount of variation you can get with just this one box. The folks who should perhaps stay away from this are those who do not like randomness in their game and who don't like games where the board state changes before their next turn. Oh, yeah. This is a game where the physical board could look completely different between one turn and the next. Now, groups that don't like overly competitive games with lots of take that should also avoid reality shift. This game can get quite nasty, and often the best way to move forward is to move your opponents backwards or just crush them between cubes. Well, that's it for our review of Reality Shift Deluxe, which is also just a review of Reality Shift as well. Racing yep. taken to a new dimension from Apollo and Academy Games, a very Ameritrash game from companies usually steeped in their war game and Euro roots. I gotta say it's a nice change of pace from the company. I do dig it. Do you enjoy racing games? I know Heat Pedal to the Metal is the hotness right now, but what's your favorite racing game? Let us know in the comments. Email me at mo at tabletopbellhop.com or start a thread over at discord.tabletopbellhop.com. And now in the Bellhop's Tabletop, we look back at the games we played since last episode. Uh, while Sean was out of town, I got in a, a quite a bit, a, a lot of gaming, some of the most I've gotten in in quite some time. Now, some of that was based on getting ready for our first event out in Amosburg, but then there was actually the event, and then we actually had a game night at Brenda's, uh, first time in quite some time, so that was pretty odd. Before that, though, I did sit down with the girls and played through the turkey trial from grand gamers guild now our plan was to play this on canadian thanksgiving it just didn't work out um so we just played it last week and i said pretty much all there is to say during our review um the only thing i'd reiterate is just how amazingly different each of these are how, how different feel which is really kind of cool so that that was really neat that um how, how they vary them up I, I, 18 cards that they make work different every time yeah the variety they've managed with 18 cards and a simple web app is just not disappointing uh you know we've yeah. still got a few more to, with three more to go uh three more and, to go and we haven't you know we, we really haven't seen the limits yet it's it they're they're all still unique so uh next up was a game of astra this is from mind clash games uh the biggest thing that shocks me about this game is it's from mind clash games whom publishes my favorite game of all time anachrony which is a huge massive box and so complicated and so many different bits and expansions and here you have a light fast playing game about drawing stars and 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 stargazing so this was our first time playing our copy we did do a demo at origins um but you know when you do a demo you never know if they stage the deck or if they, they skip the complicated rules just to make the game seem easier, easier to get the point across. Um, thankfully we got a full demo. Now, when we played at origins, we only played through one hand, basically like, like we played through until you had to discard a card. So this was our first time playing the whole thing. And again, this, uh, this is a, 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 this is the best use of dry erase I've ever seen in a game with, I don't know what they used, whatever coding they used is better than anything else I've ever erased a dry erase marker on. Um, everyone I've taught this game is like, oh my God, that race is so nice. Like people just want to draw and erase things. As for the game, I'd say it went well. Um, I, it was longer than I expected. Like I, I almost thought it was going to be a filler, but no, it's not like there, there's enough going on. 
Um, Deanna and Gwen really dig this game. Um, after our first play, Deanna actually did one of those. Aren't you glad I convinced you to bring a review copy home? And I'm like, eh, I guess I'm glad you guys like it. I, I don't love it, but it's a solid game. Yeah, I'm trying to to hold back until I play this one because uh, I haven't, you know, I haven't done anything. I didn't even see the demo, uh, but I did watch the unboxing, and and it, I just can't say it excites me. So I, I, yeah. I really kind of want to see if it if it plays better than it looks because nothing about this game makes me eager <laughs> to try it. Just on on Fair appearance. Enough. Again, th- th- this is just to reiterate how important theme can be in in a game, right? How how much it it, it either appeals to you or it doesn't. Uh, next up was a learning game of Artemis Project. This was just Deanna and I. Uh, went pretty well. Rulebook is very clear. Uh, the iconography is some of the best I've seen. Um, I, like uh, it's it's a purely language independent board, and the cards are very close to language independent. They have little stories on them and stuff, but like mainly it's the icons. And as we talked about in our episode about can a board game be too pretty? The majority of the cards are icons. Like, yes, there's artwork at the top, but the important thing is the biggest thing on the cards. I love it. Um, this is a game about colonizing Europa, which has you, um, Europa is a, a frozen uh, moon where there's liquid underneath the ice. So you're colonizing, which first has you building buildings under the ice, in the water, in order to start building up an engine. But then halfway through the game, the focus switches to building buildings on the surface, and those all generate end game points. Now, this is a dice placement game. It's got a really cool exposure system. Um, I know you're not a big fan of auctions, but there's a really simple auction mechanic that works really well. I think Sean's going to love this one. Yeah, and we've heard so many people interested in it. It's really hard to imagine there couldn't be something here that's going to click. Now, I will say my first impression of the game, just playing two-player, it was enjoyable, but it felt a little rough two-player. A lot of the systems in the game are majority-based. Um, either like in, in one area, it's whoever plays the smallest dice gets to take resources first. And in another area, when you're building buildings, it's whoever bid the most. And while that just never worked great with two players, and it almost felt like it needed a ghost player. Like this was a game that if they had said you roll all the purple dice and place one on each spot on the board, I wouldn't have felt out of place to me. But then, you know what? I usually complain about when they have special rules for two players. So I got to applaud them for being like, eh, two players, you play the same. I just thought it wasn't great. Yep. Especially after Orem, just another reminder that forcing extra player counts into your game isn't always worth it. Now, both of these plays were actually in prep for our first game night out in Amherstburg in a, a new gaming cafe, semi-new gaming cafe, new to us, called Everybody's Place, right downtown Amherstburg. You can't miss it. They have a great selection of games. So what I decided to do is instead of my usual, I'm going to bring all kinds of stuff to catch people's attention and I'm going to bring three bags full of stuff. So there's lots to play. I went, forget it. I'll let people enjoy the games that are there. And I'm going to bring pile of shame, pile of obligation games, stuff I want to learn, mainly stuff from origins. I was hyped about for a reasonably small little cafe. They have a solid 250 games to there to enjoy. Yeah. And a good mix too, like ranging from, uh, we, we watch people play a two player version of hungry, hungry hippos. Uh, note these are adults, um, to games like scythe and twilight Imperium are there. So like a great range, um, event went well, uh, place filled up pretty quickly. Uh, the one large room was filled before the event even started. And then an hour in, we had people gaming on both floors. So that was pretty cool. Um, we saw some of our regulars. We got to see some friends we hadn't seen in a while. And what I I, uh, I got to see a, a gamer I haven't seen in probably 20 years, which was cool. And we had some people who we'd never had out before who learned about the event through Facebook and Discord. So that was awesome. So, so to me, I think it was a success on all sides. 
Well, I hope it was worth it for everybody's and that they see the benefit in continuing the relationship and, and having this, you know, open gaming night. Yeah, they, they as far as I could tell, they did extremely well just on food and drinks and coffees and stuff like that. Now, as for me and what I played, um, we started with a learning game of Starship Captains. This is from Czech Games Edition, um, which it was one of the ones I had hoped to play the night before. But you know what? I, I had Weird and Fee sitting at my table, and I know they're both totally cool with learning something new. So they helped me punch the game, and we gave it a shot. Yeah, I've been, now, uh, been keeping an eye out on that one. So Yeah, this is a... a, a Star Trek inspired game, <laughs> but unlike any of the other Star Trek inspired games that came before it, this is not a bridge simulator. I've seen lots of bridge simulators. Instead, this time you are the captain of a brand new starship um, that's not in perfect shape. It's, it's You get basically a used ship and a new crew and you are out on your first um, flagship mission. Um, what you're doing is delegating your duties to various crewmen. And your crewmen come in red, blue, and yellow, which people are going to recognize the colors. They don't name them. They don't tell you what they are. Uh, I can constantly name them by their Star Trek colors, but whatever. And then you also have cadets who are neutral color. Now, the game uses a unique queue system where every time you use a crew member, they go back to the back of the line. And then it takes a while before that member is available again, which is an interesting mechanic. Now, you're going to use these crew to activate rooms on your ships to be able to do things like battle the pirates, uh, move around the galaxy, complete missions, research new technologies, and more. Nice to see a commander who doesn't risk themselves on all the missions for no good reason and actually knows how to use their crew. Yes, this one's all about managing your crew. Uh, the only bad part here was that I didn't have time to punch the game ahead of time and it was a little, a little fiddly and the table we first set up, set up on ended up being too small, which I didn't know until we had punched everything. But that was fine enough. We were able to switch tables. Uh, what I was surprised by is Czech Games Edition, you never know with their games. They, they make extremely good games. I enjoy all their games, but they're often heavier than I expected. This was the opposite. This was actually lighter and more straightforward than I expected. A bit lighter. Like, it, it wasn't bad. It wasn't definitely wasn't like Buren Pretzel laugh out loud silly game. But it was more streamlined. And man, does it play smoothly once you get going. This was very much a, a Euro style game. This was resource man. You are managing your crew. I enjoyed it and look forward to playing more. Interesting, because light, uh, even if it wasn't, even if it's not super light, but light wasn't what I expected from a CGE Euro. But that's no. not a bad thing either. You don't, you definitely don't necessarily want something that's going to be, uh, you know, brain burner AP point salad. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that is not how this felt. Um, definitely a neat game. I, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, next up, Fee asked to play Astra. The, she had seen, uh, it ends up, uh, Deanna, Gwen, and Roger were, were playing a game of it at the other table, and she was kind of, while we're playing Starship Captains, kind of taking a look at it. So then I taught the the couple a, uh, a game of Astra. Um, this was interesting. So one of the things I'm learning about Astra is everyone plays differently. Um, the fact that you can draw as many stars as you want, well, it is limited by a resource, but like some people are like, I'm going to draw tons. Other people are like, I'm just going to draw that one. And then other people are like, I'm going to split the star in half so that neither of you are going to be able to claim it. It's interesting um, how different people playing with different people affected it. And this was the most cutthroat game of Astra I've ever played, which honestly showed how much depth there is to the game and how much those decisions matter, how much which stars you fill in and how many actually impacts the, the how the game goes. Now, Fee and Weird loved it. Like, this was one of those, like, Weird's like, hey, if I start restarting my board game collection, this one will be on the list. And I will say it was my personal most enjoyable game of Astra. I have to say, hearing that and that 
that that group enjoyed it like that does raise my interest yeah. of it more than having just seen the unboxing. Yeah, that's one that, that before we review it, we got to make sure Sean sits down and plays at least one game. So it's not just me talking about the game. Now, at this point, we're at the event, we're running out of time. So I grabbed the prototype preview copy of Bah Humbug we took home from Origins. And technically, it's Bah Humbug and the 12 Days of Christmas is the, the full name of the game. Now, this is a, a pretty unique card game with a bunch of different games in it. So there's a holiday theme game that's got a special deck of cards and there's one, one, two, twos, three, threes, um, based on like there's one partridge and whatever number of Lords leaping based on the 12 days of Christmas. Right? So the core game is Bow humbug. And this is actually a re-release of Bow humbug, but that's a bluffing game. And there's only three of us. And we kind of went, eh, bluffing games don't usually worth three players. So let's check out one of the other 12 games that come with this. So what there is, it's just cards. So there's a bunch of rule cards that have the rules. And I grabbed them all and I shuffled them and I drew a game. And it said, you know, 25 minutes, three players, medium difficulty. I'm like, this sounds great. I flip the card over and it says reference card coming soon. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. So I, I guess I, I even did an unboxing of this game. It's, it's not live yet, but I, I don't remember noticing this on the inbox. Maybe I did and I forgot. So it ends up our prototype copy of Bah Humbug in the 12 Games of Christmas is, well, a prototype. It's it's more of a prototype than I expected. Um, so then I sat down and I actually looked through them. We actually only have rules for five of the games so far. So once you hit those five golden rings, time to take the rest of the season off. Yeah, at least for this preview. So this is just, it, it, I'm, I'm not complaining. It's, it's, it's a preview. We knew it was a preview. We knew it was a prototype. I just didn't realize it was, it was quite this much of one. So, so no fault of them or my fault for not noticing this. So what it is, I took the five games, I removed Bah Humbug and I shuffled those and we tried a game called The Giving Spirit. Now this is a trick-taking set collection game that actually turned out to be really solid once we figured out the rules. Now, the big problem here is the instructions are on the back of a single, you know, board game size card. While nice and brief, they weren't fully clear. Now, most of it we managed to figure out. Like, so there was a whole thing with rescoring that made no sense until we did it. And then once we did it, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. But we still had a tiebreaker question. I still, to this day, don't know if people play the same number who wins the trick. Um, we decided it would be the last person to play because that seemed to make the most sense. That said, ignoring that, uh, the you know, again, it's a prototype. The game was good. Now, it used that special deck. So you're just playing a trick-taking game where the highest number takes the trick. That's all that matters. There's no trump. But once everyone's 13-card hand is empty, you and when you take a trick, you lay out the cards you got in front of you by number. So then at the end, once, once your full hand's done, everyone's played 13 rounds, you then award wreaths to everyone who has the most of each suit. Now, remember, there's only one, one, two, twos, three, threes, and so on, and you're not using the full deck. So each wreath you give a person is worth one point, except the five, which is worth five, which I guess is just a five golden rings reference or whatever. Now, the thing is, you do this, and you go around the table, and everyone deals once. Well, whoever had the least points wins. So that was really neat. Like, it was a really solid game. Now, there was one little uh, foible in there, one little thing where there's a mailbox, and at the beginning of the game, you throw one card underneath, and no one knows what it is, and there's a postman card, and whoever has the postman gets to divvy those out. So that throws in that theme of uh, you're giving things in the mail. So I thought that was neat, too. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun little game for an all-in-one sort of game package. I mean, honestly, that that's more of a game than you really kind of expect for the back of yeah. a playing card. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is one, all three of us, Fee, Fee Weird, myself, um, agreed that, like, I'd buy it. Like, if that was the game, if, like, not Bow Humbug in the 12 games, if I could go buy the Giving Spirit, I would happily play five, maybe 10, maybe even 15 bucks if the cards were nice enough as a standalone game. 
So that's a really good sign for Bah Humbug. Like if I'm, I don't know what the price point is on Bah Humbug or what it's planned to be, but if it's only 10 to 15 bucks, like I'm sold because I've got at least one good game out of it. And I have to assume that the others are going to be good as well. So the one thing that'll be good for you, our listeners, is that with only five games to play, we're going to get the review of this one done a lot sooner. I wasn't sure if I was going to play all 12, but I was going to try to play probably at least half of the games. Well, now we only have to try five before we do our review. Though if they don't get around to publishing the tw- uh, all 12 games, that's kind of a mark against them. Yeah, fair enough. But um, it, the, the company is Small Fury Games. Furry, sorry, not Fury. They're not angry. Small Furry Games. They're meant to be um, very um, wholesome games, right? No no conflict, no stabbing, no killing, none of that. Um, I noticed on their website, their game release date for this really is October 2024. Not, oh, not this month but a year from now so there's still lots of time for them to get these games finalized all right that wrapped up a little quicker than we thought even though there was some problems getting started we have 15 minutes left so i went and found kate the owner of everybody's place said do you have a copy of taco cat goat cheese pizza sure enough they did so then we started playing taco cat goat cheese pizza um which got everyone's attention and got a lot of strange looks but it was a total hit um fee and weird kind of looked at me funny when we started but this is a laugh out loud fun your sides are hurting by the end people watching people going what the heck are you playing in another room people coming from upstairs to see what the fuss is um uh, this one's great this is a stupid silly game um that, that i thought was was just it's it's fun silly fantastic with 15 minutes left it was pretty much perfect i have a feeling we sold everyone almost everyone there on that game and the next event there, someone's going to be playing Taco Cat Go Cheese Pizza like throughout the night. It's going to pass around from different groups. And if they have copies for sale, they'll probably sell them. So I, I, it's a fun game. Yeah, that's, that one's actually not one I know anything about. So it's a silly, stupid, happy salmon. I, I'll teach you next time. <laughs> next time we're there. I don't own a copy of it. But next time, next time you can make it out to the next everybody's place. We'll use their copy. Uh, the final game I played uh, was over at Brenda's place. So it's awesome. Brenda's still dealing with contractors and flooding issues, but managed to make enough room in her dining room to clear the table off so we can actually sit down and and play some games. So here we played Artemis Project. We, we actually got in another round, um, this time with four players, with both kids, Deanna and Brenda. And man, um, similar to our review earlier, what a difference more players makes. This was a game. This was the game I was hoping for. This is what when I unboxed Artemis Project, when people told me to check it out, when our when our fans were like, review that next, this is what I was hoping for. With four players, you get all that competition for spots, the outbidding for buildings, the, hey, someone please come help me with this mission. Come on, we'll split the rewards. I'll just take the, everything I expected from the game. Now, I expect good games from Grand Gamers Guild. And honestly, this one did not disappoint at all once we got it to the four players. Excellent, if not surprising to hear, and certainly looking forward to getting to a play of it. Now, as for what's next, uh, the main thing, I'll be playing these games more, right? These were all new to me. Um, That's four new to me games just in the last week, which was nice. And, well, I need to play more. I need to dive deeper. As you know, we like to play games multiple times before we review them. Um, Also, I, I think so far, um, I, I'm, we're batting a hundred. I'm, I'm happy that we chose to bring these home. These are, these were good choices. Like we don't just say yes to every review. These are ones that I'm glad we grabbed, um, with gaming at Brenda's now on, we should have plenty of talk about in the coming weeks. And while I'm hoping we can get together with Sean this coming weekend and hopefully get him to experience some of these games as well. Plus we got to get in a three player game of Seize of Havoc at some point. And I know you dig that one already. So I just need to see how well it plays at three. Before we start locking things down, let's take a moment to thank a selection of our Tabletop Bellhop Patreon patrons. Their support helps keep this show going. Carlos, thank you, Tycho. Evil John, thank you, John. 
Diane Tuzanol. Thanks, Ma. Valentine Peach. Thank you. Chris Leary. Thank you, Chris. Well, that sounded like the double bell. Uh, that means our shift's coming to an end, and we're going to have to lock the lobby doors and uh, call in the IT department and figure out what went wrong tonight. Though the doors are closed, even through the renovations, you can always find us at tabletopbellhop.com, all over the web as Tabletop Bellhop, one word, and on your podcatcher of choice as the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. Keep the conversation going by joining us at the Tabletop Bellhop Discord. We've called it a lot tonight, but we want to see you at discord.tabletopbellhop.com. Well, that's all for us tonight. If you enjoy our content, leave a review, a comment, or a like wherever you find it. Drop by YouTube for a totally free subscription. Maybe drop us a thumbs up while you're there. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game game on. Find full reviews, show notes, and more at tabletopbellhop.com. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG and Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. 